2: Their ideology, everything they'd been brought up to, to believe, told them that sooner or later there will be an international revolution, sooner or later the whole world will be communist.
3: That was Anne Applebaum on the early years of the Cold War in Europe.
4: There was a historically unprecedented decline in interstate warfare, especially in the West and especially in Europe, which is one of the most violent places on Earth.
3: And that was Steven Pinker on Violence Through History. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast, with me, Rob Attar. This podcast is brought to you by the team behind BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. Plus we have a Kindle edition available on the Amazon website, and an iPad edition on the Apple newsstand. You can find out more details of all of this, plus great subscription offers, on our website, historyextra.com. And if you have any comments about the podcast or any of our other products, you can get in touch with us through email, podcast at historyextra.com, on Twitter at historyextra or on Facebook forward slash historyextra. For this week's episode, I'm delighted to say that we have two guests of international renown. First up is Anne Applebaum, a journalist and historian who is best known for her Pulitzer Prize winning book, Gulag, that examined the Soviet system of forced labour camps. Her new book, just published, is Iron Curtain, The Crushing of Eastern Europe, 1944-56, which looks at how communism was imposed on the region after the Second World War. Our book's editor, Matt Elton, met up with Anne recently to find
2: out more. It's such a huge topic,
5: this. I mean, how did you decide which countries and which years to cover in particular?
2: What I was interested in was the technique, if you will, or the, the, the process of Stalinization. How, how do you create a totalitarian state um, out of what was really countries that were just emerging from the ruins of war? You know, how, how is it done? What institutions do you need to uh, reform? Or you know, how, how do you corrupt people? How do you get them to collaborate? Um, and and that, that interest dictated the time period, which is 1944, which is when the war really ends in Poland. Um, to to 1956, which is when you have a real change of regime um, after the 56 rebellions in Hungary and Poland, uh, so it, so that so the time period was emerged from the subject. The choice of countries um, came out of my interest in looking at countries that were very different. Um, and they'd had very different war experiences. Germany had obviously been a Nazi country. Um, the Hungarians were something in between. They were allied with the Germans, but not entirely happily. And the Poles had very actively resisted Nazi occupation and had been um, a, a part of the allied uh, alignment. So, so they, and they all had very different political traditions, very different war experiences. Nevertheless, by the year 1950, they had very similar looking governments. If you'd looked at these countries from the outside in 1950 or 1951, you would have seen identical mini Stalin leaders, you would have seen marches and parades, you would have seen posters, you would say, wow, all of these countries are the same. And so my interest was, how did that happen so quickly? Um, And in terms of how these countries
5: differed or were the same from Soviet Russia, do you think the governments really were in any kind of serious way, independent, or were they actually just controlled by central government?
2: Part of the book is about that dynamic. Um, there were local communist parties, uh, and there were local collaborators who, who, you know, who 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 without whom I would say the Red Army and the and the NKVD would not have been able to transform uh, transform the states. Um, Nevertheless, it's very clear in all these countries that the Soviet Union had a plan, not a a day-by-day plan or a year-by-year plan, but had a very clear idea, rather, of what it wanted to achieve in these countries. And it either convinced um, its local collaborators to go along with them or browbeat them into doing it. And there were very particular institutions they cared about. They cared a lot about the radio, for example. They thought that was the most important medium. So they, had, you know, they weren't so they weren't so bothered by newspapers in the beginning or by you know, certainly not by intellectual journals that might be anti-communist. They got interested in those much later. They cared about mass media. Uh, they cared about setting up secret police forces. And this was something they did before they arrived. Uh, so the Soviet Union had already set up a Polish language, Polish-speaking secret police units um, in, in, in the, trained in Moscow during the war before they arrived, um, so, uh, so there, were, there were certain pieces of the puzzle they did in advance. A third one, a very important one, is uh, they were obsessed and very interested in the, from the beginning in what we now call civil society, and this meant everything from sporting groups and chess clubs to youth groups and, and, of, and of course political parties. Um, but and they were particularly interested in youth groups and unifying the youth movements and making sure that all the youths, youth groups of various kinds were under communist control was something that the Soviet Union cared about from the beginning. That's something
5: that comes through, I think, in the book, the whole attention they paid to youth opposition. Um, do you think there was a particular reason why that was such a focus?
2: I think like the Jesuits they believe that when you get people young that's how you can transform them remember that it's at some level and it's always hard to say you know it doesn't doesn't cover everybody at some level Both the Soviet communists and the East European communists believed their own propaganda. And they also believed in the power of propaganda. So they believed that if we get people young, if we just explain to them and convince them that this is the right way to do things, uh, it will work and we will be able to hold them and we will be able to control them. And so they had a very long term way of thinking. We convert the young people, we get them on board, and then these older people, you know, these old ladies who go to church or these old men who still have some Guns buried in the forest from when they were fighting the Nazis, they'll all eventually die. And, and in the meantime, and by then, we'll control the country.
5: You write a bit in the book about the mindset that people were left with after the war and how that shaped their resistance or their lack of resistance to what happened afterwards. How far do you think people were shaped by their experiences during the war?
2: Yes, we, we in Western Europe often forget how completely devastating the war was in the East uh, uh, much more so in, in almost every way um, particularly you know Germany Poland Hungary um, Czechoslovakia and also Ukraine and Belarus and, and the Baltic States these were the countries that were very much in the middle of the war you know the the, 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 the Hitler so the Soviet Union had marched over them in 1939. Um, Hitler marched over them again in 1941. The Red Army came back in 1944. And these countries, you know, there are, there are cities in that part of the world that changed hands three times. And every single time they changed, there were massacres and uh, mass murders and mass arrests. So these were, these were countries that were, you, the, the percentage of the population that had died is, is 10%, 20%. It's, it's, it's nothing like the numbers that you get in Western Europe. So the, there was a kind of devastation, but in addition to that, there was a, there was a, the war had a psychological impact there that's also hard to, to understand. You know, these are countries, you know, when you're talking about Germany and Hungary, these are countries that were defeated. And so they're countries which, where the entire pre-war and wartime elite had suddenly lost their, their legitimacy, and people said, it was all wrong. You know, everything Hitler told us was wrong, it was all a lie. You know, Germany's not the master race. And if, but if everything's wrong, then what's the answer? Maybe there's something completely different and new has to come at, you know, and, 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 and reorder society. And, uh, that was, and the, the acceptance of communism came partly out of that. You, but you also had a parallel experience in Poland and Czechoslovakia. You know, the pre-war elite of those countries had failed. You know, capitalism had failed, liberal democracy had failed. Uh, France and Britain had not come to their rescue. The liberal democracies had failed to help them as well, the, the Western liberal democracies. And, you, you know, and, and the, so they had the experience of failed liberal democracy. They had the experience of failed Nazism. What else was there? And the Soviet Union appealed to many people as a kind of legitimate alternative, at least at least in the, in the very early days.
5: Mm. And to what extent do you think that Western countries let this spread of communism happen?
2: It, certainly, it's fair to say that the West did nothing to stop it. Um, you, you know, there's a, there's a long argument about whether the West could have done more, whether we could have blocked at least the Soviet occupation of Poland, whether we could have... You know, there was, there, certainly, it's true that the American armies could have taken Prague instead of letting the Red Army do it. Certainly, it's true we could have tried to get to Berlin faster. Um, but th- there was a political decision taken early on in the war that we aren't going to do that. Uh, we are going to let the Soviet Union take over Eastern Europe. And there was a vague and not very well thought out feeling that, well, maybe it wouldn't last very long and eventually they would withdraw. Um, But it became immediately clear, I mean, by 1946 it was clear to everybody that they weren't going to withdraw and that they were treating these countries as occupied countries.
5: And from the point of view of the communists, I suppose, how much do you think it was a kind of intentional aim to spread world communism and how much was it just an idea to kind of build a buffer between themselves and the West.
2: I think you cannot underestimate the importance of Marxist-Leninist ideology in the thinking of the Soviet leadership. Their ideology, everything they'd been brought up to, to believe told them that sooner or later there will be an international revolution, sooner or later the whole world will be communist. And Stalin had a very opportunistic way of thinking about this. Well, okay, maybe it's not gonna happen next year and so I'll bide my time. and. Uh, maybe it's maybe I'll have to wait ten years. And there's a, there's a famous um, essay uh, written by the Soviet foreign minister during the war in which he said, "Well, maybe maybe it will take twenty or thirty years for Europe to be communist." But they certainly assumed that it would happen sooner or later. At some point, it would at happen. some point it would happen, and at some point they would take over. And so, in that sense, it was it was very ideological. And in addition to that, it was also useful militarily and economically to take over that region for the Soviet Union. It it wasn't so much a buffer zone. It gave them, um, you know, access to a a whole new level of much more highly developed societies. Um, They had, you know, access to coal mines and access to factories that they didn't have before. So it was very important in many ways for them. Sure.
5: Okay. And in the face of such overwhelming certainty from the kind of minds of the leaders that this would happen eventually... What do you think gave people the power to oppose that?
2: Well, the fact is that although the leaders at some level were convinced that communism would succeed everywhere eventually, in practice, it never worked, and nothing ever happened the way they said it was going to happen, and they didn't. The, the East European countries didn't get richer faster. In fact, very rapidly, the West became, began to grow much more quickly than the East. And very, very quickly, it became clear that nothing they said was was happening. and this and this created a series of crises. I mean there was constant crisis in the communist camp, and a constant attempt to reassess the ideology and reassess the plan and to try this this version of economic reform. and when that doesn't work, to try a different version of economic reform. and and the th- system lurched from crisis to crisis really up until the end, because actually reality never did fit the plan. And so that meant, they were constantly having to explain themselves, and you know, this, this is also, of course, one of the sources of violence, both in the Soviet Union and in Eastern Europe. You know, when people were unable to fulfill the plan, and when the system wasn't growing this fast, what, whose fault was it? Well, it was spies, it was saboteurs, it was enemies, it was people who were undermining the system. You know? So rather than admitting that the, the ideas themselves were wrong, they tended to blame people, and that's where you got uh, terror, waves sure. of terror. Okay.
5: So it was about finding new people to blame for the system's failures,
2: in a way. There was a constant search for explanations, why does the system fail? And so, yes, they they sought out people, they blamed the West, they spoke of spies, they spoke of conspiracies. They needed an explanation for why it wasn't happening the way it was supposed to be happening. Sure. Some of the stories
5: in the book, like there's um, fairly young teenagers who are part of fairly innocuous societies, were then arrested for being part of some wider kind of opposition movement.
2: Yeah, well, this is the, the 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 Soviet and then and the East European communist mentality was very attuned to the possibility of dissent and where it would come from. And what they really disliked was any kind of spontaneous self organisation and even very innocent sounding groups that were as I say, hiking clubs or chess clubs, could become the target of paranoia and fear. You know, we need to, we need to get rid of them because they're organising themselves. And that was, um, that was true from the very beginning until the very end. Something that really interested me
5: is the idea that there's some recent archive discoveries that have become available in the last few years, um, what new discoveries do you think they offer us in terms of studying the period?
2: And the, the archives of this period in this region are now totally open. No. You can see all the German archives. you can see the Stasi archives. you can see the Polish secret police and Hungarian secret police and they're they're all very open and very accessible. Um, the only difficulty is you have to speak all those languages, which is <coughs> very difficult indeed. Um, but the in the, what the archives give us is not so much a completely new picture, but they give us the uh, official view of what was happening and, and really what people were saying behind the scenes. So we knew the general outline of the story, but it's very different to read, for example, you know, an argument being conducted inside the East German Politburo, in, in it was 1949 or 1950, about private shops, because there were still some private shops in East Germany then. And they began. To, they were arguing. I, I read a. One, it was a wonderful um, depiction of this argument in which one that one person was saying, "Well, why is it that these shops are doing so well?" You know they're doing better than the state sector, and so somebody said, "Well, then what we need to do is we must ban them because then if we ban them, then the state sector will improve. They must be undermining this." And then somebody else says, "Well, no. If we ban them, then people will starve because there will be no way to do food distribution." And you can see right there the clash of reality and ideology, and people, you know, trying to understand what was happening, um, and you know, in a way that's very clear and that we didn't really have before. You know that, and there. In addition, there. Um, there are many, many stories about uh, the, you know, who they were identifying as enemies, their search for possible resistance groups, uh, the, the mentality of the regime becomes very clear when you're able to read the archives.
5: And how do you think people in these countries now feel about the period?
2: This is a very difficult period for everybody in that part of the world. Uh, I often find when I interviewed people, people were very happy to talk about the war their role in the war. People felt they'd done, particularly in Poland, they'd done many heroic, really heroic things during the war, and um, they'd, they'd worked in the underground and so on. And then they were also very often happy to talk about 1956 and the period of reforms that happened and so on. To get people to focus on the late 1940s is very difficult, because you'd say, okay, so you came back from the war, and then what happened? And they'd say, oh, well, that wasn't very interesting. Nothing very good happened. And it was a period of real moral ambivalence. People were confused. They knew it was a new occupation, but most people didn't want to be fighting anymore. They wanted to fit in. They wanted to, young men who'd been in the woods for five years wanted to raise families and go to school and study. And people wanted to, some kind of return to normality. And therefore, they often had to make small compromises or collaborate in very small ways or, or even bigger ways with the authorities. And they felt bad about it and feel bad about it to this day. So it's not, a, it's not a heroic or grand period in the history of these countries.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring
0: Visit BetterHelp.com slash History Extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot slash History Extra. That
3: was Anne Applebaum talking to Matt
0: Elton. Iron Curtain has just been
3: published by Penguin. Look out for a review of it in BBC History magazine soon. And now we have a short advert. Roger Luckhurst talks about two forgotten stories from the Victorian period – that lie at the center of the mummy's
0: curse mythology.
6: There are two adventurers who go to Egypt. One is called Thomas Douglas Murray. He uh, discovers an amazing um, mummy case, uh, buys it from these mysterious Arab traders, and probably shoots his own arm off. Uh, and that begins a whole cascade of stories about the mummy curse that run all the way through late Victorian period into the Edwardian period. The second story was about Walter Ingram, uh, a, an adventurer and a soldier who fought in the Zulu wars in the 1870s and then went to Egypt in the 1880s and tried to... Um, was involved in the very famous attempt to rescue General Gordon from the ...dastardly Arabs in Khartoum in 1885. And he was someone who um, bought, uh, again, bought a mummy case uh, in Luxor, um, sent it home... ...and it became a famous curse story when he was killed by an elephant just two years later on a hunting trip.
3: The Mummy's Curse, the true history of a dark fantasy by Roger Luckhurst, publishes October 2012 and is available direct from Oxford University Press and all good bookshops. Judging from the constant stories about violence and warfare on the news, you might be forgiven for thinking that we have never lived in bloodier times. But, according to Harvard scholar Stephen Pinker, the opposite is the case. In his book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, Pinker argues that violence has been on the decline for millennia, and that despite the problems that continue, we may be living in the most peaceful age ever seen. On a recent trip to the UK, Stephen came along to our studio to talk more about his theories and to offer his explanations about why this fall in violence might have come about. Would you say it's accurate to say we're now living in the least violent age in human history?
4: Quite... Quite possibly. We're in an age in which war between rich, developed countries has pretty much vanished from the map. uh, War between countries in general is becoming increasingly rare. There are still nasty civil wars, but even they are becoming fewer in number and less destructive when they do take place. This is on top of massive declines in rates of homicide since the Middle Ages and the abolition of many forms of institutionalized violence like burning religious heretics at the stake, uh, torturing criminals to death in front of cheering mobs as a form of criminal punishment, throwing debtors into prison, uh, beating children daily to discipline them, and uh, countless other forms of violence that seem to be in decline.
3: And is it a steady decline of violence from, say, prehistory to the present day?
4: Uh, No, it is uh, a a decline that is highly uneven, depending on the category of violence. We certainly brought homicide under control before we uh, stopped waging war on other nations. Uh, The decline of homicide uh, began in the Middle Ages, whereas you could really only see a decline in war after the the, uh, end of World War II. Uh, Nor has it been completely smooth. There have been some nasty surprises and reversals. In the 1960s, the rate of violent crime went up in every Western country. Not back up to the levels of the Middle Ages, but uh, a reversal of a centuries-long trend. In the developing world, there was an outburst of civil wars following decolonization in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So uh, the shape of the curve is often a declining, scalloped curve. That is, the overall trend is downward, but with a lot of reversals, and it began its descent at different times for different categories of violence.
3: Are all parts of the world experiencing this decline of violence, or is it only mainly in the West?
4: All major regions of the world, certainly not all pockets of the world because there are still uh, wars and, and uh, uh, human rights violations going on, but uh, certainly all of the continents have. It's, it's not the case, for example, that uh, that Africa is as violent as it used to be. There's been a decline in civil war there. Uh, there's been a, decl- a massive decline in East Asia, which used to be one of the bloodiest spots on Earth and is now one of the the most peaceful. Uh, There's still an arc of uh, civil wars and terrorism uh, running from uh, sub-Saharan Africa up through the Middle East into South Asia. Uh, That's where the most civil wars persist, but even they tend to be less destructive than they were even a few decades ago.
3: And it's interesting to to talk about a decline in violence because I I suppose a lot of people would think the 20th century was perhaps the most violent with the two world wars, with the Holocaust, with what was going on in Russia... Does does the twentieth century still fit into this model?
4: The uh, certainly the first half of the twentieth century in Europe and the middle decades in Asia had uh, each had horrific spikes of violence, but the twentieth century, like all centuries, is a hundred years long, not just uh, fifty. And the after World War II, there was a historically unprecedented decline in interstate warfare, especially in, in the West and especially in Europe, which was one of the most violent places on earth and then all of a sudden war pretty much vanished from uh, Western Europe and uh, except for a small burst after the fall of the Soviet Empire in Eastern Europe as well. Uh, Also the uh, genocides and wars of the first half of the 20th century were not unique in history. Uh, There were other periods that had uh, uh, horrific waves of bloodletting, the European wars of religion, the Mongol invasions, the Crusades. In China, every time a dynasty fell, there could be tens of millions of deaths. Uh, we tend to forget the the uh, world wars and similar atrocities of earlier centuries and concentrate on the ones that was in with, recent cultural memory.
3: And am I right to say that in terms of proportion of the population, the world wars weren't actually the most... Blood, your most destructive events in history. Uh,
4: maybe not. Uh, it uh, much depends on on how you count and uh, which estimates you use. But uh, according to one count that I did, at, uh, World War II comes in at ninth place. Um, the, uh, that isn't a, a, a real statistic in the sense that it's based on on uh, a hard, replicable data. But I think what is undeniable is that if you take into account world population, there were a lot of centuries and atrocities that uh, that compete with. With world war ii
3: and i think the, in, the evidence for some of these crimes is quite interesting particularly when you talk about the prehistoric period and how and the idea that we have for violence in in those days how are you able to kind of assess the rates of violence for before the time we have written records
4: two ways one of them is forensic archaeology that is, you, you look at the skeletons and mummies and uh, look for signs of violent trauma. I, I think it's uh, not just a coincidence that when Uzi the Iceman was found in the uh, Tyrolean Al- uh, Alps a couple of decades ago, uh, forensic examination showed that he had an arrowhead embedded in his shoulder, and he was carrying a dagger with the uh, blood of three different men. <laughs> uh, now, of course, that's just one example, but it does indicate a pattern, which is an awful large proportion of prehistoric remains have arrowheads in, embedded in them, have decapitations, have signs of cannibalism. Uh, by that measure, the past was pretty bloody. And another more indirect measure is if you look at the few pockets of on earth that remain in a state uh, like the one that we spent most of our our history in, that is, tribal hunter-gatherer, hunter-horticulturalist people, people who don't live under organized central state. Uh, Their vital statistics, the causes of death, also show a very high rate of death in warfare, shockingly high by modern standards.
3: And that must go against the grain of of a lot of... Or certainly the popular view that people who live in these tribal societies, live in these pre-civilized societies, are very peaceful and in harmony with nature. So is that essentially not
4: true? That is essentially not true. Right. Now, there, is, there is variation. There are um, peoples, especially ones who have no neighbors, who don't have wars with their neighbors. because They don't have any. They, they, they ran away. Uh, in, uh, but they often have very high rates of internal homicide. Uh, The ones who do live within uh, Spears' distance of their neighbors uh, have high rates of homicide that went unnoticed because the anthropologists were highly impressed by their battles, their pitched battles, when you had two uh, groups of warriors who... uh, met each other on a battlefield pretty much just out of the range of each other's spears and arrows, and there'd be a lot of trash talk and insults and obscenities. A few spears and arrows would fly, and then one guy would get hit, and they'd all call it a day and go home. So you get the casual impression that the war was largely symbolic and ritualistic. There are two problems. One of them is if you keep if they keep meeting on the battlefield uh, every year or so and a couple of people get killed and there are maybe 50 men in a band to begin with, that can add up. More uh, dramatically, though, the largest number of casualties don't come from these noisy pitched battles, but from stealthy treacherous raids, where a party of warriors will surround a village before dawn and then when the men wake up, they'll, they'll be met with a, uh, a fusillade of, of spears or arrows. That can kill a lot of people quickly, and that's what contributes to the very high rates of death and warfare in, among tribal peoples. It's the raids, not the battles.
3: And I guess because you've only got relatively small numbers, you don't have to have like a huge number of people killed for the actual proportion of deaths to be quite high among these groups.
4: Uh, quite right. That's right. We uh, we have large numbers of people getting hurt in our wars, but we have an even larger number of people who grow up, bring up their kids, die of natural causes. And so the odds are that if you're a person in the modern world, you, we will not die of violence. And that was not true uh, if you pose the same question about the... Um, band and tribe level societies that we spent most of our history in.
3: Do you think people have a hard time believing this idea that violence has been declining so much over the centuries?
4: They do, partly because their sense of the amount of violence in the world comes from the news, which by definition covers things that happen, not things that don't happen. Uh, if a bomb goes off, if a uh, uh, disgruntled postal worker opens fire uh, and kills his, uh, his his workmates, that makes the news. All those post offices where no one takes out a gun and kills his co-workers aren't on the news. And all those capitals uh, of countries that don't have wars don't have a guy with a TV crew and a microphone saying, here I am in the capital of Mozambique and yet another year has passed with no war. It's only when you look at statistics and you see how many parts of the world are not at war, those are the ones that don't make it onto the news, that you realize how rare war has become. Now, it still occurs. Wherever it does occur, that's where the cameras are going to be. If it bleeds, it leads. That's the motto of many news organizations. And uh, because the human mind is impressed by uh, gory images, bloody uh, scenes of... Uh, those get burned into our memories. Those affect our intuitive sense of the probabilities, and so our intuitive sense is out of register with the actual facts.
3: And the big question here must be, why? Why has this happened? Why have human societies become less violent? Is it, is it an evolutionary effect, or is there enough time for that to have happened?
4: Uh, In theory, there's enough time for there to have been some evolution in the strict geneticist sense of a change in gene frequencies over time. Uh, A thousand years is enough. Uh, uh, Several centuries could be enough. But I'm skeptical that that is the reason behind these changes because some of them took place very quickly and very recently. Such as the decline in war since 1945, the the Germans used to be the world's most warlike people. Now they're the world's uh, most pacifistic people. That could not possibly be a biological change, given that some institutional changes, changes in norms and values, can drive rates of violence down in a span of a couple of decades. That's on grounds of parsimony. That's the only explanation we need for the longer term change, changes.
3: There's something going on at a wider level in different societies. What kind of factors are we talking
4: about here? Government. Uh, I think if you outsource your revenge to a disinterested third party, you're less likely to get blood feuds and vendettas and cycles of violence as each side believes that its opponent is uh, treacherous and needs to be uh, punished. And when you have two sides both thinking that they're on the side of the angels and that their enemies are treacherous and evil and vicious and nasty, uh, that mutual self-delusion can stoke cycles of violence. If you've got a uh, lady, lady justice with a blindfold and uh, scales and sword uh, meeting out the, the uh, punishments, uh, it's likely to be capped at a lower level. So wherever there is anarchy, there is violence. When government imposes effective control, even if the government can be nasty, as many governments are, it brings down the, raids of, uh, the, the rates of internal raiding and feuding. Uh, I think a second pacifying force has been commerce and trade, that uh, if your wealth is based only on land and what's in it and what you grow on it, then the more land you have, the richer you are, and, and the, the way to career advancement is to plunder the land of uh, the, the knight next door or the warlord. Uh, If your wealth comes from exchange, being part of an economy, then uh, other people are more more valuable to you alive than dead, and it's cheaper to buy stuff than to plunder it. And so the rise of roads and carts and money and finance and contracts, which turned the economy from mineral and farming-based to to commerce-based, had a pacifying effect. I think the growth of uh, literacy and travel and communications had an effect. It's harder to demonize other people if you've rubbed shoulders with them, if you uh, realize that uh, they live lives like ours and that uh, their claims to greatness are interchangeable with ours. And I think the growth of education, reason, science, rationality has a role, first of all, in uh, expunging toxic superstitions, that, such as that, uh, if a if a ship sinks, it must be a witch that cast a spell, and so let's go round up the witches and burn them. Or if there's a an epidemic, it must be the because the Jews poisoned the wells, so let's 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 uh, throw up a pogrom. Uh, or maybe it's the blacks taking away the jobs of the whites, so let's string up a few blacks to, to keep them in their place. As you have a more sophisticated understanding of how the world works, uh, you blame misfortunes on other people less often. Also, you start to apply your ingenuity to the problem of violence and, and try to figure out ways in which everyone can beat their swords into plowshares at the same time. Yeah, you treat violence as a problem to be solved. And we've we've kind of chipped away at other problems. We don't get sick as often as we used to. We live longer. Uh, we don't have as many famines. And so we've also applied our ingenuity to violence.
3: Is there empirical evidence that countries that, say, have more trade, have more effective governments, and are perhaps more literate, do engage in less violence?
4: All, all three of those have been shown statistically. Now, of course, it's not 100% of the time, but on average, a country that is, uh, um engages in more trade, is more open to the world economy, that has more effective government, uh, and that has higher levels of education is more likely to be democratic, is less likely to have civil wars, uh, and is uh, less likely to have genocides.
3: Um, But what about, I suppose, a countervailing trend would be the advances in technology that make it much easier nowadays for a more advanced country to kill a lot of people, for example, nuclear weapons? Has that not in any way balanced out these other factors?
4: Well, you never know what could happen, but I think it's pretty unlikely that now that Russia and the United States will fight a nuclear war, uh, certainly less likely than it was in the uh, 60s and 70s. Uh, and uh, the, the odds that, that France or England will use its nuclear arsenal are very, very close to zero. Uh, so the weapons exist. We—it's pretty important that we lock them down. Uh, but I, I don't think that uh, in, in the uh, that the uh, we're going to see a plausible scenario in which they're going to be used in the uh, near future.
3: So it seems like it's not that people have become less violent. It's- in terms of their own impulses, it's more that those impulses have been controlled by kind of external factors, maybe psychological factors.
4: That, that's what I argue. I think people still uh, get on each other's nerves. They have conflicts. They they uh, can't stand each other. They have violent uh, fantasies. They enjoy violent entertainment. But less and less do they translate those impulses into actual acts of physical violence. We you know we might. Sh- shake with rage but we count to 10 and walk away instead of uh, pulling out the dagger and settling the score right there.
3: And does, does your book have a, any predictive model? Do you, do you expect violence to decline further? I mean there's still clearly a lot of wars in the world. Do you think they are likely to become less and less frequent as time goes by?
4: I'm careful about predictions because there there can always be uh, rude surprises. There there are unknown unknowns uh, that that make it unwise to predict too much too far into the future. But I think there's some things that are more likely than than we think. Uh, the end of war between countries. That sounds you know like like woodstock or, or or hare or a kind of romantic vision of uh, of, of, of uh, hippies uh, and i 'm very much not that i 'm actually quite cynical when it comes to human nature, uh, but uh, nonetheless, the end of war between countries is not a uh, necessarily a romantic fantasy. Uh, certainly, that's been the, the the trend, not just that wars haven't broken out, but they are less and less an option among, uh, certainly among developed countries dealing with each other, which is a radical break from history. And other violent institutions have been abolished and, and more or less state abolished. Um, uh, slave auctions, sure. uh, uh, that is, enforceable contracts to own other human beings, are uh, gone. There's still human trafficking, but it's at a fraction of the proportionate level that slavery used to be, and there's no government that will uh, allow or, or uh, enforce slavery. Uh, human sacrifice, we don't symbolically kill someone to propitiate an angry god. Public torture executions, uh, debtors' prisons. Uh, in many parts of the world, capital punishment, and a lot of these changes seem to be one way. That is, once they're gone, they kind of stay. They stay gone. There are only two hundred odd countries in the world. If they pretty much make it a norm that we we don't invade, we don't uh, bombard each other, then uh, it's not crazy to think that that could be a, a, a long lasting change. Civil wars are harder to predict. Uh, because it's not just 200 actors, but the world has 7 billion people, a uh, couple of dozen young men who get their hands on some AK-47s and form the, the popular front for the liberation of whatever, mm. uh, could could start a civil war anywhere for, and cause some misery for, for a little while. Uh, I suspect they'll get less frequent. The, the risk factors are pushing in the right direction, uh, but that's much harder to predict.
3: And I suppose in recent times we've been living through a period where resources might be becoming more scarce and you have environmental issues. Might there be a risk that that will push people towards renewed conflict?
4: It's possible, and there's um, great reason to be concerned about uh, resources and the environment, although I think that armed conflict is actually not one of the major ones. For, for one thing, uh, not that many wars are fought over physical resources, when, when you think about it, you know, what was World War I about? I mean, the historians are still debating it, but it wasn't over, over some pot of minerals or water. And likewise, World War II and Vietnam and uh, the, the, the Arab-Israeli wars. Uh, people fight over uh, revenge and justice and ideology and fear and honor and grandeur. And it's actually surprising how few wars are fought over uh, as a rational contest over a finite resource. Uh, studies that look at uh, um, correlations between say drought or famine at time one and war civil war at time two find very little connection uh, and a number of reasons one of them is resources are one of the few things that you really can divide you can't uh, that adversaries can can split uh, also it's generally the uh, you need a little bit of Of surplus wealth to uh, form an army and when you're uh, at the the absolute bottom of poverty it's not so easy to scare up an army.
3: And just to go back to a point you made uh, you sort of touched on earlier there probably are a lot of people today that would say that religious belief or religions have had a very positive effect on reducing violence. Is that something that you address in your book?
4: Uh, Yes. over the course of history, I think the opposite argument would be more plausible, that uh, certainly the European wars of religion were the bloodiest events in Europe uh, outside of the two world wars and, and, and as a proportion of the population, they're in the same league. Uh, Certainly in the Middle East now, we're seeing a lot of violence that would not be as uh, intractable if it wasn't for religious passions keeping people going, and terrorism is yet another example. Now, this doesn't mean that religions in general are a cause of violence because religions themselves change over time, uh, and they tend to become... More tolerant and uh, less bellicose, they are influenced by the same forces that influence secular culture and politicians and leaders. And so, the the executing um, blasphemers and homosexuals and people who work on the Sabbath is, even though it's 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 there in the in the Bible, and most Jews and Christians claim to follow the Bible, but. There's some fortunate hypocrisy in which the nasty bits uh, tend to be buried or forgotten or fig leaves put over them. And that's a way in which many religions have changed over time.
3: It was interesting in the book, just showing quite how violent some of these old religious books were. And the point you make that people don't really take their morality from the religious books. They, They might claim to, but actually they take their morality from the prevailing moral climate of the society they live in.
4: Thank goodness, yes. Uh, so the uh, the Old Testament has one genocide after another, commanded by God. God says, go out, kill all the men, women, and children. Uh, over and over again, the, the Jebusites and the, the Hivites and the, the one one extinct tribe after another, if you believe the Bible, was just massacred down to the last child. Uh, we tend to de-emphasize those bits. We de-emphasize the bits about putting someone to death if they wear clothing with uh, mixed wool and linen or if they uh, pick up sticks on the Sabbath or if they talk back to their parents. Mm. So uh, it's a, a, a hypocrisy for which we should all be thankful that even religious people are not religious in the old sense.
3: And and those, and those the fact that the books were written at that time, even though you made the point that they're not necessarily true events that all of these or there's some dispute about whether they were true but they do say something about the climate of violence in that period
4: yes so many of the genocides that were narrated in the bible probably did not take place for example the sacking of jericho where the the walls came tumbling down and all that well the archaeologists have not found a a layer of charcoal uh, around the or collapse ruins uh, around the time that the Battle of Jericho would have taken place. So it was really more a, a matter of myth than of reality. Nonetheless, it does capture a practice, and whether or not the ancient uh, Israelites engaged in genocide, they, they certainly thought it was a really good idea. <laughs> and, and they kind of they boasted, we're, the, mm. we're, we're mean and tough enough that we, we could have done it. Uh, and that's, that's been a big change. Now when genocides do occur, Uh, They are uh, shameful, they're hidden, they're concealed, and the rest of the world uh, is appalled, uh, brings the perpetrators to trial afterwards, uh, enormous changes from the standards of uh, centuries and millennia ago.
3: So is one perhaps one important factor, the way that violence is no longer celebrated to anything like the extent it might have been in the past.
4: That is a big change in in just the the valorisation of violence. Now, if you live in a culture where you are constantly under threat by neighbouring tribes, uh, then, violence is a your own ability to perpetrate mm-hmm. violence is a very good thing indeed. It's the only thing that keeps your, your women from being abducted and your children from being uh, killed. And, and so, the cult of the warrior and of manly honor that is, your, uh, you show enough resolve that if your strength is probed, if, if any weakness is probed by insults or, or minor stuff, you have to come down like a ton of bricks to prove that you're tough enough. Uh, not to be uh, invaded Uh, and and that's why you go back in many periods of history and there's a a cult of the warrior it's the most ennobling thing to be strong and brave enough to, to kill other people uh, that And that was true in tribe against tribe violence. That was true in man against man violence. The code of gentlemanly honor, even in the American South until recently, was one in which an individual man had to prove his mettle by responding to insults with violence if necessary. And that has changed. Instead of a, uh, a culture of honor, we have, uh, in respectable circles, a culture of dignity. That is, a mm-hmm. true man is not one who lashes out, but who walks away. Uh, Now, we have that luxury because we have the police, Uh, but increasingly you have, uh, on the personal scale and on the international scale, a devalorization of violence. Countries, many countries, are proud not that they keep winning wars and can invade their neighbours whenever they want to, but they're proud that they stay out of wars, like you know Canada and Holland and France and Germany. Their national pride comes from a completely different source than what it did, where it came from uh, historically, and uh, I think that is a trend that's growing.
3: And you, you touched on something earlier about the American South, and there, is there a point that people in the American South are, still have a greater propensity to violence than people in the North, due to some of these historical factors that you mentioned?
4: There's a, a big difference. that The rates of, of uh, violent crime in, this, in the American South and Southwest are higher than in the North and on the coasts. Uh, and it is, it's been said that this is part of a culture of honor that also includes the endorsement of violence in things like capital punishment. Those are the mm-hmm. states that still execute people. In corporal punishment, those are the states in which children in school can still be paddled and, and strapped. In uh, the military, the, a huge percentage of the mi- American military is staffed by Southerners. And in political attitudes, get tough on crime, have a belligerent fo- foreign policy, are much more positions of the South and the West than the North and the coasts. And it is uh, – some historians trace that all the way back to the British Isles, noting that the South and Southwest were settled by Scots-Irish herders who, uh, because they were in mountainous anarchic regions and their wealth was easily stolen, namely livestock, which can be – has feet and can be led away, uh, they had to develop a, a, a culture of honor, a warrior uh, ethic. And that that's persisted uh, generations later in the American descendants of those uh, highlanders and herders. But uh, a less exotic hypothesis is that much of the American South and West was, re- remained in a state of anarchy until rel- relatively recently. The old cowboy movies had the cliche, uh, the nearest sheriff is 90 miles away, uh, so you have to defend yourself. And that the idea that a uh, man is responsible for his own safety and the safety of his family, that he can't count on the government uh, to do it for him, persists and affected the government itself. Because democracy came late to America, by the time the government did come or get around to establishing control, the people were content in defending their own safety, and they said kind of, no thanks to a pervasive court system and, and uh, government that would do their revenge for them.
3: And is, is that why countries such as Britain are still, despite sort of economic similarities, less violent than the United States? Uh,
4: I think so, that um, Western Europe in general, has rates of homicide that are a fraction of those in the United States, despite all of the cultural and economic similarities. And a plausible answer is that um, most of Europe was brought under the control of monarchs several centuries ago. Uh, often by brutal means with the public hangings and the disembowelings and and exiles to penal colonies and all that nasty stuff. By the time Europe got around to uh, implementing democracy, They pretty much accepted that the government is in charge. Then they made the government democratic. In the United States, uh, democracy and government arrived hand in hand. And the people in in the South and the West were so used to defending their own safety that when it came time to accepting a government, they said, we want a government that lets us defend our our safety for ourselves. We have that in the Second Amendment to the Constitution. The Mm -hmm. right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed.
3: That was Stephen Pinker. His book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, has recently been published in paperback by Penguin. I'm sure many of you will have thoughts about Stephen's ideas, so please do get in touch with us on email, podcast at historyextra.com, or Twitter at historyextra. Well, that's about all for this episode. I hope you've enjoyed the programme. We shall be back next week, when we'll be broadcasting a fascinating talk from our Tower of London lecture series. In the meantime, do have a look at our website historyextra.com where you'll find all manner of great content and you can, of course, keep in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook as well. The History Extra weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Dave Gibson.